Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas to you. Four days until Christmas, and I pray that your Advent season has been peaceful. That's a bit of wishful thinking. If not peaceful, then maybe hopeful. And if your Advent season has been neither of those, I want you to just take hope. It's not, it's not up to you that God is present and with us. For the gentleman in the room, four days till Christmas. Maybe you need to make a list at this point and start to think about, consider your shopping. I want to remind you we've been in this series called Sing in Exaltation where we've been looking at some of these Christmas hymns, Christmas carols that we sing and we've been looking at kind of the background, the history of them and the theology that's embedded in them um, as a way to help us worship more as we sing. And I want you to know it's difficult for me to pick a song out of all of the Christmas hymns because I love so many of them so much. I thought about the first Noel um, because when I was about 10, I was a strange little girl. I was so excited for Christmas to arrive that I made a little set of folders for each day of Advent, each one filled with a craft idea that I made up to, to, for me to do to help pass the time. That's right, yours truly made an Advent craft calendar. Well, one day my craft was to make the letters of the word Noel in big, you know, cut out construction paper and tape them on my bedroom window for everybody in my neighborhood to see. I thought, even though I didn't know what Noel meant, I just thought that seemed like a very festive word. And so I cut out the big letters. I taped them proudly to my window. And you need to know something about me. I've shared this before. Spatial relations are not my strength. And so from the inside of my bedroom, it certainly spelled Noel. And I felt pleased about that. But from the outside of my bedroom, it actually said this. So we walked out, my family, I don't know where we were headed for the evening, and my 12-year-old brother, who was two years older than me, just looked up at my window and started cracking up. He's like, Mary Noel, everyone, Mary Leon, everyone. And he just kept teasing me like only a 12-year-old brother can. So I thought about that song. Then I thought, I thought about the Carol of the Bells. And I thought to myself, if I hear that song one more time, I'm going to pull my teeth out with pliers right in the store. I don't even care anymore. So <laughs> I didn't pick those two. I settled on a song, though, a Christmas song that we all know that has a very different origin than any of the others that we've heard so far. Because if you've been able to come to this series or if you've listened online, you'll remember that almost all the other Christmas hymns that we've learned about were composed or written by European or American men. And don't get me wrong, I like European and American men. I have many of them in my family. But we have to remember, one of the things I think it's important that we remember is that Jesus wasn't European or American. That Jesus was born to poor Jewish Middle Eastern peasants who were living under the occupation of the powerful and oppressive Roman government, that Jesus was born to people that the world considered nobodies, but that God considered worthy, incredibly worthy to be born to, to be raised by. And I wanted to find a song that helped me remember that. 
to help me remember during this season that even in the incarnation, that moment of God becoming flesh, as with the rest of his life, Jesus demonstrates that God, as Philip Yancey said, has a lean toward the underdog. It is good for me as a person of privilege, and I'm assuming it's good for you all, because we're all here people of privilege in this, in this hungry world. It's good for us to remember that about God and to worship him for it. So go tell it on the mountain, which is the song I'm going to look at for a little bit this morning. It's different in origin from any of the other Christmas songs in that it flows out of the American slave culture. Now, I did not know this until I started to look at the history. It is an African-American spiritual. And like many spirituals, its music and lyrics cannot necessarily be attributed to one person. There is a man named John Wesley Work, and I have his um, picture here. He grew up in Nashville in a music-loving family, and he earned his master's degree in Latin. And he was the first person ever to compile a songbook of black spirituals. He did this in the early 1900s. Some people believe it was John Wesley Work's father who wrote this song, and his son just arranged it and published it. But most historians believe that the author of this song was an anonymous American slave who simply made this song up and began singing it to other slaves who then began singing it to other slaves and to themselves. And this song moved across our country, especially in the South, from plantation to plantation to plantation. And I just love that image, that in the midst of the gravest human sin, those who were the victims of that sin were subversively singing about the redemptive and rescuing heart of God through Christ. I also think it's important that you know that many famous folks have recorded this, including my favorite, Dolly Parton. I was going to have maybe bring her version, but I thought that would ruin everything. So that was the most appropriate picture I could find of Dolly. (laughs) I'm like Googling church-appropriate picture of Dolly Parton. So there are two things I especially want us to notice when we sing this song this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, that the first two verses are really all about the shepherds. And this is very important for this reason. In Luke chapter 2, which Dave even read part of it um, for our call to worship this morning, right after Jesus is born, we learn that the first people this birth was announced to where the shepherds, an angel came to them and just scared the bejeepers out of them, if you can imagine it, and then said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people, because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this may seem like no big deal to us, unless we understand the shepherds, Because I wondered to myself as I looked at this song if one of the reasons it revolves around the shepherds is because in Jesus' day the shepherds had some very strong similarities to what the American slaves went through in some ways. Shepherds were the lowest people on the social ladder. They were people who were often considered, by religious people of course, the farthest from God. They were considered religiously unclean because of the work they did. So they were not allowed access to the temple. And they couldn't worship God with other people. And yet here they are, 
considered by God to be worthy, to be first on the birth announcement list of God. And that is just how God rolls. And I imagine that if and when the slaves learned this information, it made them love the shepherds all the more. So notice the shepherds. And the second thing I want you to notice is the really simple lyrics and the joyful kind of repetitive tune. It's important that we notice that this is not a richly packed theological treatise like so many of the other hymns. It's just a simple song of joyful announcement. And it helps us remember that the slaves probably didn't, well, I know they didn't. They didn't have any access to all the theological books and libraries that the free European American hymn writers did. But they knew a few stories of the faith. And I bet they knew one particular story that resonated with them to their very core. I bet the American slaves who wrote this song knew that for 400 years, the Hebrews, God's chosen people, lived and worked as slaves to the Egyptians. That movie's coming out, you know, which will help us remember this history. They knew the story that starts in Exodus uh, chapter 2, starting with verse 23. This is what it says. During that long period, I love how the Bible says things like that. That's 400 years. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now I want you to notice something in that text. In the Bible, when it says that God remembered something... God remembered his people. It does not mean that he forgot. He is not like me when I find myself in the basement, walking down there with such strong intention and getting down there and thinking to myself, holy cow, why am I here? What was I? And I walk around trying to hope something will spark my memory of why I'm down there. It's really stunning to me. This happens all the time. Anyway, in the Bible, I'm like, paper towels? Why am I down here? In the Bible, when, when, it, when it tells us that God remembers something, it means he is about to take action. And act he does. So he hears his people's groaning. He remembers his covenant with them. He has an interaction with Moses through the burning bush, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. And this is what he says to Moses, starting in chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and Cellulites. I added, I just added that. (laughs) I just couldn't help myself. Forgive me. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. God sees his people's agony. And he hears their cries for help. 
and he is concerned about them. And so he acts. And can I just take a minute, a little sidebar here. I want you to notice in this story as we read it, yes, it tells us about the Israelites and the Egyptians, but it tells us something about God. We do not worship a God who turns a blind eye away from us when we're struggling. It may seem like he does, you know, because his timing is not ours. But he saw the Israelites. And he sees us. He sees you. And he is not a God who is indifferent to his people's cry for help. He heard the Israelites and their groaning. And he hears us. And he hears you. With whatever, with whatever it is you're struggling with. And he's concerned when he hears us. His heart broke for his children who were living in slavery. And God's heart breaks for us. God's heart breaks for you when you hurt. And God will act. And in this instance, he acts. And we read these words in Exodus 3, in the verse 8 that I read. We read, so I have come down to rescue them, God says. So I have come down to rescue my people. This was the message of the Exodus. God came down through Moses to rescue his people. But this is also the message of Christmas in an even more literal way. God came down through Jesus to rescue and to deliver this world that he loves from sin and death and fear and guilt. The slave who wrote Go Tell It on the Mountain knew in a way that most of us will never know that the birth of Jesus was not only the best news ever given to humanity because he would forgive his people from their sin, but it was good news because this Jesus was a deliverer. He was a rescuer. He was the same God who heard his people's cries and who freed them from bondage. The author of Go Tell It on the Mountain didn't know much theology, but he knew God. And he knew that the humble Christ born on Christmas night was the same Christ who stood in the synagogue 30 years later and opened up the scroll and read these words from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I bet when the slave who wrote Go Tell It on the Mountain heard these words that Jesus spoke, he didn't over-spiritualize them, but he actually believed that these were the things that Jesus was going to do. And so before we belt out this song together, because my friends, it's a belter. You can't sing this one soft. You got to bring it. (laughs) Let me just ask a couple questions to all of us by way of application. So first, at the, at the risk 
of downplaying the tragedy and travesty of literal slavery, which I do not want to do. I want to ask you, where or how are you in bondage? Where or how are you in bondage this morning? Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And maybe that's how you're in bondage this morning. Maybe you found yourself a slave to sin and it's just killing you. I mean, guilt is eating you for lunch. Or, or maybe sin's inherent destructiveness is just ruining your life. You see, God doesn't hate sin because he's a killjoy. God hates sin because it kills his children and it destroys lives. We don't have to look very far to see it. So maybe that is how you are in bondage this morning. And you've never simply opened the gift of forgiveness that Jesus offers this Christmas season and actually every single day of your life. Today, I just want to remind you that forgiveness can be found at the cradle just as much as it can be found at the cross. Or maybe you're being mastered by something and a slave to it. Maybe it's not sin, but maybe it is. Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, verse 19, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. So it might be fear or addiction, the the grip of addiction that has mastery over you. Maybe it's a bitterness toward Someone, maybe someone even in your own family, you know, that you just won't let go of. Or it's greed that's killing you. It promises it won't kill you, but it always does. Or maybe you're in some kind of religious bondage. There's a ton of that. Guilt, you know, that you're not meant to carry. Judgmentalism toward other people. Legalism, thinking you can good your way to God. Or maybe you're in a hole financially. And this season just adds another shackle. Or your marriage feels like prison or job. When you sing this song... I want you to remember that the very heart of it, the DNA of this song, is that God hears and he sees and he remembers and he acts. And he will come down and rescue you. He can free you from whatever it is that enslaves you. So do not lose hope. And I get that the wait might seem like 400 years. But the very bedrock of our faith tells us that if we cry out to God, God will act. And do you remember how he acted in the story of the Exodus? In chapter 3 of Exodus, God gets the attention of a shepherd. I love this little bit of irony. Moses was tending sheep. When the burning bush appeared in the middle of the desert, 
God says to the shepherd, Moses, I've seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cry. I've come down to rescue them. And then he says these startling words to Moses. And before I read them, I have to say, in Exodus chapter 2, we hear the story of Moses seeing the Egyptians uh, treating the Israelite slaves badly. And so he, Moses kills an Egyptian. And Pharaoh tries to kill Moses. So that's the backstory to what God tells Moses after he tells them, I've heard, I've seen, I'm coming down to rescue them. And then in verse 10, this is what God says to Moses. So now go, Moses. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. As John Ortberg paraphrased this section, this is what he said. Moses, little shepherd boy, I have a great idea. How's about you go to Pharaoh, the tyrannical dictator of the most powerful nation on earth who may have a bounty on your head, but that's okay. You just tell him the God whose name is I am wants you to let his prime labor force go and then just come back and check in with me when you're finished. You have to understand what God was asking Moses. And Moses had all the objections any human being would have in this situation. And he had all the objections you and I always have when God taps us on the shoulder and asks us to go help set his people free. When God wants to set people free, he almost always taps broken, screwed up, fallen, ineffective human beings on the shoulder. And he says, partner with me in my rescue mission. And so my last question to us this morning before we sing is, where are others in bondage around you? Where are our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, crying out in some kind of bondage? And God is putting a burning bush right in front of us and asking us to go set his people free, and we're walking right on by. When Chuck and I were a lot younger than we are now, uh, we lived in London for a year. Chuck got transferred there for his job. I, uh, I was about, we were about 23, 24. Um, their unemployment was so high that um, I, as Chuck's spouse, could not get a work permit. So I, I did a lot of things. And one of the things I did was I went to a place called the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity in downtown London. It was an organization started by John Stott, who's a great British theologian. And I spent, I can't remember, three or six months studying um, under John Stott and with a bunch of Christians from across the world. And it was my first real experience with Christians from the developing countries. And I noticed that they were not very friendly toward me. Some of them did not really like me. And so I thought what I would do is just increase my chirpiness, my kind of sorority, collegiate, American friendliness. This had the exact opposite impact And so one night we were all at dinner and we were supposed to share with each other our ministry contexts. What, where did we live? What, what kind of church we went to? And the pastor from Mexico started to talk and he explained that he pastored a church that was right in the middle of the largest trash heap in Mexico City. He worked with the poorest of the poor. They had nothing. And after he explained his whole situation, you have to understand, I was so young. He turned to me and he said, 
Some days I wonder, where are my American brothers and sisters in Christ? Where are you? Where are your churches, your people? Where is your financial help? He said, I look at all of the wealth that you have. And I don't understand how you don't see us here in our poverty and reach out to help. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of those moments where it seems like the whole world just stops and a spotlight shines upon you and your ugliness and you're just stunned. And I think the only thing that I could think of to say was, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. And even though my parents had tried to teach me this my whole life, you know, you don't learn anything from your parents in your 20s. It was the first moment that I actually realized that my faith is inextricably linked with the well-being and flourishing of my neighbor. And so I want to ask you this morning, how might God be saying to you, I have heard the groaning of my people, and now go, I am sending you. This is such a dangerous question to ask, where do I see other people in bondage? But it's, I think, one of the most important questions to ask yourself. So as we sing this song, remember, it is, of course, for you. This is about the good news of Christmas and of Jesus, but it's also for your neighbor. And as we sing this song, may we give a tip of our hat to the American slave who wrote it and from whose faith we can learn, because he knew that the good news the angel brought to the shepherds was only good news if it was good news for everyone. He knew The part of the good news was not just that God in Christ would rescue individual people from their individual sin, but that God through Christ would start to rescue people from systemic and cultural and political and economic sin. This slave knew that God through Christ would start to rescue people from the kind of sin that causes certain people groups to believe that they are superior to other people groups, who start to believe that their lives count, that their lives matter more than other people's lives. God help us when that happens. And he knew that God through Christ would start to break us from the sin that breeds racial hatred and division and segregation and racial discrimination in our day and age. And all over our communities. And I know, I know you're thinking, it's Christmas time, Alice. <laughs> but you guys, we just can't sing fa la 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 and barumpa bum bum, barumpa bum bum, or swahar kalapel, sweet silver bell. You know, we can't just do that with our eyes closed. Followers of Jesus, of all people, should be able to look directly at the dark brokenness of this world and also at the dark brokenness of our own hearts and at the exact same time sing joy to the world and hark the herald angels sing an O holy night and go tell it on the mountain because we sing of the great deliverer, the great rescuer, the great God who came down and established a beachhead of freedom through Jesus, in a world held captive by sin and despair. 
Remember when you sing that we worship a God who hears and sees and remembers and comes down to rescue. And then he says to his rescued people, he always does, now go. I am sending you to deliver my freedom and justice and truth and peace and righteousness and grace and mercy to all people. But remember, Jesus said, because he he spoke these words through Isaiah, I'm especially sending you to the poor and the prisoner and the blind and the the oppressed. Go. Tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Amen. Let's pray, and then we got to belt this one. God, you are the great rescuer. You are the great deliverer. And you hate it when your people are in bondage to anything. Because you came to set people free. And so, God, may we rejoice now as we sing about the ultimate freedom that you provide. Freedom from sin and death and despair and guilt. But may we also, God, think about all kinds of freedom that you want your people to have. And may we turn to you for that freedom, God. And may we then go into this world and offer that freedom to others in all kinds of ways. Thank you. Thank you that you love us enough to set us free. Amen.